This is Felix Sharp. I'm here with Chris Robin, a.k.a. Detroit Beastie. I talked to this brother and I said, I need I don't know where I'm going to post this, what I'm going to call it, but I need to talk to this man. Like I need to sit on the therapist couch and talk to this man because I can't talk to anybody here in Kentucky. We're talking Detroit Lions football today. We're talking just Detroit Lions. This is not a Debbie. This is a Debbie debate extra. Detroit Lions football. I want to start here, Chris. Um, so the thing that's, that led me to believe I like I had to talk to you as you, you posted a picture of Jermaine Crowell. All right. So Eagles fans have their own fourth and 26 play that they love. But so do Lions fans. A little known play, a fourth and 26 play. You and I were both in the building. Why don't you start with this? What do you remember about that game? What was the fourth and 26 play that had us so hype? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. And here we are. And then just when I think I can't get more hype, you got Trick Trick, you know, playing in the intro video and everybody's, you know, amped up and, and, and going wild. You know, I'm sitting here because, you know, the screen cuts out, you know, for people that are watching it and even me. So I mute my microphone and I'm like, this is about to get really fun and, and really live because, you know, Trick Trick and Eminem and that song go absolutely nuts. But that's what they do. That's what we're about here in Detroit. But in terms of the, the Jermaine Crowell, you know, fourth and 26, I believe uh, we shared a couple messages, some private messages about this because you know I posted the photo and you were inquisitive about it. And that was one of those times where it, it kind of scarred me where I rarely leave to go to the bathroom during get so first and second quarter i'm in my seat halftime i make a mad dash to the bathroom get a soft pretzel you know a pepsi at the time because I, I was underage so i don't get out of my seat because of that play it was at the pontiac silverdome and i, I believe uh, i was i was young like middle school age like 96 97 uh depending on the year exactly i mean again you know dates and times may escape us or escape me but you still know i, I know you know the car i drove in i know what freeway i took to get there but the date and the time escape me it's just i guess when you're when you're young and you're little and you're not a grown man with you know wife kids jobs and stuff anyway so i get up to use the bathroom i was there with my father had a popcorn and a soft pretzel and i drank two like really big Pepsis and I just couldn't hold it anymore. So I get up to go. You see, uh, it was an incomplete pass, I believe on third down. And then so fourth and 26, you know, you're like, this is fine. This is the perfect time to go. You get ahead of the crowd. They're not doing this. And then I was in the bathroom and you hear the, ah, ah, you know, people freak out and I run out, you know, pulling up my pants or my shorts. Cause I was, you know, a young impressionable kid. I didn't know what the heck was going on. So, uh, where I was, I was in the bathroom. It's very embarrassing, but, uh, that's the God's honest truth, Felix. Let me set the stage a little bit. This was the St. Louis Rams at the height of the St. Louis Rams powers. This was Kurt Warner, Isaac Bruce, Marshall Falk, uh, Tory Holt, Ricky Prohl. This was that team. And the Lions, I believe, were six and one at the time, or excuse me, five and one at the time, 1999. All right. And, you know, Lions fans haven't had this type of success. It's a competitive game. We're down in the third quarter, fourth quarter, something like that. Gus Farrat gets sacked. It's fourth and 26. Throw it away, file out, what have you. 
Jermaine Crowell gets behind the secondary on fourth and 26, catches the ball. We get a first down. Eventually, Johnny Morton out of USC, who went, be, who went on to become a UFC fighter, <laughs> scores the winning touchdown. Scores the winning touchdown. I mean, it has to be one of the most jubilant um, uh, celebrations for Lions fans in the last uh, probably 25 years or so. We haven't had that many. Fourth and 26. That's when I said, okay, I have to talk to this dude. Because you, because remember, I said, I said, no, that wasn't the, t- you thought it was the touchdown, that it was the touchdown on fourth and 26. I said, no, I think, I think Johnny scored the, the touchdown because, uh, because I was on that side of the end zone. So <laughs> you let's talk. Pontiac Silverdome is no more, right? Unfortunately, I love that yeah. place. So I love that place. I love that place. They had a, a, a WrestleMania, for God's sakes. I believe, it, you know, Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant uh, in that stadium. You had so many good teams and, uh, you, you know, no no Super Bowl bound teams. But it was just, I think of the Silverdome, it was, that was the birth uh, of, of my Detroit Lions fandom. And I know we talked in private DM, so I'm trying to, you know, pull the curtain back a little bit for the people watching. Because how fun would it be if I go, hey, you remember that message I said? you yeah that was pretty cool <laughs> no one knows what we're talking about we look like fools here but you know the silver dome what was when i think of the detroit the tr- detroit lion excuse me i think of the silver dome and i think of barry sanders because in college i went to oakland university i used to pass the silver i used to actually i used to get off the exit on uh, m59 right before uh update road i got off at squirrel road but i would sometimes if i had enough time i would go cruise the, another exit and go up and around just so i could see the Silverdome on the right-hand side, and then bam, hit my exit here. But to me, the Silverdome is the birth of my fandom for the Detroit Lions. Now, I know uh, we, we everybody talks about who their what their favorite team is, how you got in to said favorite team, and it's it's my father, and it's the Silverdome. They go all three. It, it's it, they go hand in hand to me, and the Silverdome is special to me. I started my you know every Thanksgiving. I, I go to every Lions Thanksgiving Day game. I had a you know a a season ticket package, you know, later on in life. And I, I canceled it or I gave it up for wings and, and the tiger or something like that. But my, my streak of going to Thanksgiving day games started in, I believe 1995, I was in fifth grade, a friend, you know, come, come and hang out and, and we'll go to the game. So, you know, it, it's just the excitement, everything is there. And I know, I, you know, later in the broadcast, we'll get to where's the better place to tailgate. So I don't want to bury the lead here and we'll get to that. But the Silverdome is special. It always will hold a special place in my heart, uh, just like Joe Lewis Arena does. You know, it's just, you go there and you live it for so long and it's just like this living, breathing thing. I mean, I know it's it's just steel and cement and concrete and it's not, not a big deal. Everybody across the nation, you could ask, you know, 10 people and I probably uh, only one out of 10 would know what the Pontiac Silverdome is. And that's and that's fine. You know, you're not in Detroit. It's not, uh, you know, a living, breathing thing, as I said, like it is to me. So uh, I've always loved the Pontiac Silverdome. Uh, So many fun memories there. And I I, I know we'll get to them. Well, let me. So at that time, uh, my parents divorced when I was in kindergarten. We used to spend the weekends uh, at my dad's house in Detroit. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And for those who don't know geography, Detroit and Kalamazoo are about 
two hours or so apart from each other, right along 94. Uh, 94, you go 94 West, 94 East, 94 is what connects Detroit and Chicago. Uh, we would meet in Jackson. My mom would drive halfway from Kalamazoo to Jackson. My dad would drive from Detroit to Jackson. We would meet there during the school year. We had, we had lot, we had season tickets also. I can't remember exactly when, but we had season tickets also. And so Sundays were, you know, really fun because we got to go to the Lions home games. And then we got to Kalamazoo, you know, late at night to get up, to go to school in the morning. One, I want to pull out one game in particular that I remember. And I remember I was sitting on the 50 yard line in the upper, the first row in the upper deck. Okay. And it was um, Lions Jets, the games that the game that Barry went over 2000. And I remember the, the play distinctly. He broke a big run and then like somebody kind of caught his leg and his, he bucked up in the air to, to, to get, uh, get away from his hands and, you know, win over 2000, the place goes crazy against a very I'm, stout, uh, Philadelphia Eagles team. And he didn't do anything Jets, all game. New York Jets, New, New York, York Jets, Jets. New he York didn't do Jets. anything yep. all game until that, that long run, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, it's crazy how impactful these things are because I also remember Reggie Brown. I don't know if folks remember Reggie Brown, but he had a catastrophic injury in that game to his neck. He was on the on the field for, you know, 20 minutes or so as they tended to him and was never the same. The Lions have had two of those injuries, catastrphic, catastrophic injuries. injuries. Uh, Reggie Brown and then Mike Utley also Mike Utley, yes. uh, was, par- was, was, was paralyzed. So um, it's these things that just stay with you, that just stay with you, these memories that you have. I tell you, the thing that I loved about the damn Silverdome was how loud it got. That place was rocking when the Lions were good. There wasn't that many times when the Lions were good, but when they were, it was rocking. And it was always like I we had season tickets, I think, to the second season that Ford Field opened. And I hated Ford Field because, one, it was smaller. And, two, one whole side of the stadium is with all these suites. So n- ain't no noise coming from those, those suites. But when you're in the Silver Dome and you've got all those people inside and the sound is bouncing off of the walls, that place got loud. That place got loud when the Lions are good. Um, so I miss the Silver Dome for that for that reason alone. For that reason alone. And I, uh, let me let me. Are there, is there anything else I want to say about this? This is what I remember about the Silver Dome. I have one when you're ready. Sim- go ahead. You go and you, you share. Okay. So, and- well, so in uh, in '99, I believe, uh, no, actually 2010. There's still the Silver Dome. I think the last year or the second to last year. And the only reason I know it was the Silver Dome in the year because I was playing uh, junior varsity football uh, in high school, freshman and a sophomore. And our our vars, or excuse me, our JV head coach was the guy on the field wearing the the windbreaker. You know, standing behind the uh, the uprights. You know, and the kickers would practice, and he'd catch it, and you know, he'd throw it back, and 
and you'd re-kick it. So again, my fourth or fifth year in a row on Thanksgiving, uh, we went and we got there playing the, the New England Patriots at the time. I believe it was Tom Brady's second season as a starter. And he goes, you want to come down onto the field? We walked to the wall. I mean, our, our tickets weren't, weren't anything special. Lower bowl, but you know, it wasn't on the field or it wasn't like right on the wall, the sideline here. So was, yeah, that, that's the whole reason. We said, hey, Coach Jim, if we come early, you know, trying to get over him. Can we come down on the field for a minute? So we he we hopped over the wall because he had the credentials. He's wearing the like the Reebok windbreaker and all that. And Tom Brady and the Patriots, after the, the Lions kickers went out, they started to run, you know, plays in that end zone. So I'm standing, you know, 15, 20 feet from Tom Brady. I'm not going to lie and say I gave him a hug or I, you know, shook his hand or anything, <laughs> but it was it was very impressionable as a 14, 13, 14 year old yeah. kid playing junior varsity football, being on the field. And you could, you look around and it's just packed. It's Thanksgiving. That's a tradition of its own here in the city of Detroit. So that was, that was fantastic. And I believe, you know, the Silverdome wasn't around much longer in terms of the Lions, you know, being active and playing there. Well, I want to describe the Silverdome for folks who don't, um, who didn't get to visit. I, I think the Silverdome sat like a hundred thousand, the same as Michigan as Michigan Stadium as the big house. Um, it was essentially built in like a hole. So when you go into the Silverdome, you walked down. You went through the gates, those circle thing, those security things. You walked down and on these concrete slabs into the Silverdome. Usually, in front of every door was um, uh, the ten dollar program guy. We always got a ten dollar program. Um, but I want to talk about the parking lot. This is the biggest difference between the Silverdome and Ford Field is that the Silverdome had a surrounding parking lot. So the tailgating was all happening in one area. All and inclusive. you would hear, yes, and you would hear everybody's listening to pregame show. Everybody's got their grills out. Everybody's throwing the, uh, the football around. And then, you know, at a certain time, you walk down to the game. I love that. I loved hearing, you know, all the cars listening to, Jim Brandstatter, and I don't know if Dan Miller, I don't think Dan Miller was the play-by-play guy at that time, but it was definitely Jim Brandstatter. It was uh, was definitely Mark Champion. He was uh, a- a Yes, there we go. He was a professor of mine when I got to college for a sports broadcasting class. We're we're still in contact. He's on Twitter and every Mark Champion. He's now, uh, he was the radio voice of the Lions for 23 years, I believe. Now he's the radio voice of the, the Pistons, Detroit Pistons. Well, he was the radio voice of my childhood. He and Jim, the radio voice of my childhood. Um, so that was the Silverdome it, at, at Ford Field. And, and, and Pontiac, the Pontiac Silverdome is obviously in Pontiac. Ford Field is in downtown Detroit. So there's no like surrounding parking lot. Everybody parks in different spots. So it's not the same, you know, communal feel. It is, but it isn't. It's not the same. I, I've got the Silverdome being a much better tailgate because of that communal field than, than, than Ford Field. I mean, am I right on that? Or are there things about being in downtown Detroit that you like? Well, here's my thing. You know, when I go downtown for a Lions game, uh, let's, I'll just, I was going to say for Tigers and Red Wings, there's not, those are, they're good. I mean, they're okay, but it's nothing like the Lions. You know, I said uh, several times last week on several broadcasts, like the, the Tigers could win 10 consecutive World Series and the Red Wings could win 10 se- consecutive Stanley Cups and the Lions could win four games and they're still going to take the headlines here. The Detroit Lions are, you know, in fact, the most important franchise 
franchise in in the city of Detroit, in the state of Michigan here. But in terms, so what I was getting at, a tailgate, you that's the point of it. It brings everybody together before the game. And you can, I, yeah, you just walk up and down the rows of cars. Hey, grab a hot dog here, you know, whatever. People are hanging out, partying. You can people watch and you're all together. It's just a giant maze and a giant collection of like-minded people. You know, you might get a little pocket of the of the visiting team and you boo them, but there's respect and you move on here. But when it comes to Ford Field, it's like uh, like different teams. There's a, there's a collection. You know, if I were to tell you in the mid 90s, hey, Felix, I'm going down to the Lions game to tailgate. All right. Uh, you just walk around and you'll find me. If you say, hey, I'm going down to watch the Lions at Ford Field. There's several pockets. There's several areas. Well, I'm going to be uh, at Greektown. I'm going to be, uh, you know, on Brush or right in front of uh, Comerica Park. So there's several pockets. So it kind of splits people up, which to me defeats the purpose of tailgating. You want to be together in one spot, just, you know, gassing each other up and, and chatting, laughing, catching up, talking like we are. And then bam, you know, 10 minutes to kick off, everybody files in. So you're right. The Silver Dome was, was one in a million in terms of, you know, bringing everybody together and tailgating. Tell me if I'm wrong, Chris, but Ford Field, it has a more of a corporate feel. At least it did to me early on. You got all those suites on one side and those people ain't drinking and making a whole bunch of noise. It feels like the atmosphere is a little more friendly than it was at, at, at the silver dome. Am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And then in the, I believe it's the, I'm going to guess here. There's only, there's that West end zone or the East end zone, the one end zone where the big, you know, uh, glasses that looks out into, I think you could see 75 from there. There's a bit, a, a massive 500 foot, uh, a, you know, Pepsi bottle or a, like a Pepsi, mm-hmm. you know, thing yeah. right there, which is fine. You know, in today's day and age, you know, you know, th- there's got to be sponsorships and, and things along those lines, but you can tell the real from the fake when you go to the Lions game. You know, if you wear a, a suit and tie to a Lions game, you're probably mm-hmm. just there for, for a corporate gig or, or something along those lines. If you're wearing beat up jeans, a hoodie, and then you throw your Lions g- jersey on over the hoodie, those are the kind of people I want to hang with on Sundays. I want to go from nostalgia to talking about the team now. So we just went over a big overhaul. Brad Holmes from um, L.A., from the Rams, comes in as general manager. They hired Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell was on the 2008 team that went 0-16 as a tight end. Um, We've got Aaron Glenn as defensive coordinator, and Anthony Lynn comes from the Chargers to be the offensive coordinator. You've been more positive about this than I have felt. I wanted Robert Sala. Robert Sala went to high school in Dearborn. The Lions practice facility is right off Rotunda Drive, exit five off the Southfield Freeway. Right there, right there, Allen Park, baby. The legislature, the Michigan, the Michigan legislature, some like representatives sent a letter to Sheila Ford Hamp saying, please hire him. He goes to the Jets. I have to believe that they offered him the job and he just didn't take it. Because I don't know anybody else who was like looking for Dan Campbell to come be their head coaching job to come to come be their head their head coach, but I wanted Robert Sala. He was at Michigan State. He's from Dearborn. The players respect him, especially. I wanted him because the players respected him because nobody respected Matt Patricia, and it would have been a good contrast to bring to bring in Sala in. We didn't. Sala goes to the Jets. Eric Bieniemy still in Kansas City. 
We get Dan Campbell. You've been more positive about the hire than I have. Tell me, tell me why. Well, here's my thing. So when it comes to Robert uh, Salahi, Salah, I think the the right pronunciation here, maybe there, again, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I've never had a conversation with him. I've never met the guy and I've literally read nothing about, you know, why he chose where he went. But let's say realistically from a human standpoint, from a man, we're, we're both men, we have egos where we can be insecure. I wonder if there was a, like a little touch of insecurity there. Because coming to Detroit, uh, being a local guy and coming to Detroit in the situation that they've been in for so long, maybe that was th- just weighed on his mind too much. Maybe it, it stressed him out. It freaked him out. You know, I'm from here and so much I, I would burden, I would have everything on my shoulders to kind of turn this around. And if I don't, where am I going to go? If I screw this up in Detroit in you know, right next to my own hometown, where am I going to turn? I'm going to be put down. People are going to say, well, you just didn't have what it takes. And as fast as he, you know, shot up, you know, coach the coaching tiers and boom, to be thrust into a head coaching role, you know, there's a lot of ego that goes into that. And and you could say, if you say, if you tell me, no, you know, I think that's a lie. All these guys as humble as they try to be on camera and as close knit and supportive as they are in locker rooms, it's all about, you know, ego. I want to win and I want to do, I want my name in the lights when I turn this franchise around, or I want my name in the paper when, uh, you know, I do something well for, you know, such a, a downtrodden organization like the Lions or the Jets. And don't get me wrong, the Jets are just as bad off as the mm-hmm. Lions are right now. So you, you might say, well, if he if he didn't want to go to a bad team like the Lions, then why the heck did he choose the Jets? They're just as bad. Well, although albeit in New York, the, the pre- there's more pressure to, to turn this thing around in Detroit than there is with the Jets. New York has the Yankees. They have the Giants. The Giants are, mm-hmm. you know, they dominate you know the, the football news in New York here. But Robert Salehi could go to the Jets and it's just like, what whatever, what will be, will be. Everything you were to, everything you would do as a Lions, as a first time head coach and in Detroit with the Lions everything you do is under a microscope. Now, again, same could be said in New York. They, they had they, they, some some witty, punny headlines, but the, there, there's less pressure in New York. So again, I don't know in the Detroit, guy. You're going to have Mike Valeni. You're going to have oh, Mitch Album on, on your head. When you, when you mess up, I'm sorry, go ahead. (laughs) And again, let's say, let's say he wasn't from, from Dearborn and he didn't have ties to the city of Detroit. Let's say he was a California, uh, you know, born and raised kind of guy, but I don't know which one he would have chosen, but him being from the area, I think that kind of deterred him in a way, whereas in, you know, leading up to the the head coaching hires, uh, everybody said, Oh, Saleh, he's a shoe in he's coming here. He's local. But I, I, I genuinely think that he was, uh, more nervous than we all think about coming here and trying to put on a show and trying to turn them around. He would have been banished from the city had he come here with such high expectations. And realistically, uh, I don't think he could have ever lived up to the expectations. He could have won, uh, you know, one Super Bowl in 10 years, but we know the city of Detroit, it, the, the people and, you know, the, the makeup of, of the city of Detroit, they still would have picked on him and found a way. So I think it was just too big of a burden to come here to Detroit. So he went to the Jets and no, he's, his name hasn't been in the paper one time. And look at Dan Campbell. He's in the paper over and over again, just for some silly, you know, uh, press conference. Kneecaps you know, his, and yeah. yeah. No, I mean, 
my problem. So Dan Campbell wasn't on the map. You know, you had Joe Brady, you no. had Eric Bieniemy, you had Robert Sala. Um, those are kind of the main, the main ones that I'm thinking of. Did we just lose you? Did I just lose you? <laughs> those are the na- the main ones that I'm thinking of. Um, and and Dan Campbell just wasn't really there. He's never been an offensive coordinator. He's never been a head coach. He's never been a defensive coordinator. He was a tight ends coach in New Orleans. And we just tried to bring an assistant coach from New Orleans to fix the offense when they brought Joe Lombardi uh, to Detroit under um, uh, under Caldwell. That didn't work out no. so well. But I think what we're trying to do here is mimic the Mike Vrabel kind of let's take a former player and establish a CEO uh, uh, and kind of build the culture from there. But even – so you got Anthony Lynn. You got Aaron Anthony Lynn, former player, Aaron Glenn, former player, and they got uh, quarterbacks coach Mark, Mark Brunel, former quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars. There's not a lot of, like, kind of proven um, development out of – any of these guys, and it's just, it's something that I'm worrying about. I'm specifically worried about it in case the Lions draft a quarterback at number seven overall. You've got, I mean, like if they take Justin Fields or Zach Wilson or Trey Lance, you've got you got Mark Brunel, but you've got before they hired Brunel, you had nobody that had been a quarterback on that staff. And Mark Brunel, he's a quarterback, but he's not a. I don't know that Mark Brunel was ever a quarterback's coach. That scares the living daylights out of me. That you know we got Jared Goff. He's not going to have Sean McVay in his ear anymore. And then they might draft a quarterback with no one around them with a proven ability to develop quarterback talent. Chris, we could be heading back to the dark ages for the Detroit Lions. I think that this year is going to be bad, but I'm kind of I'm scared about the foundation that they're building, given that there's nothing there on defense. There's there's not that much there on offense. You got you got Rag now. You've got Decker on the offensive line. Um, I'm forgetting somebody, but your offensive line is probably your strongest unit on the team. You got DeAndre Swift. You have no receivers. Why? I don't. We're going back. We're going backwards. We're going backwards. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, that, that, there's a lot to unpack uh, in your statement there. So, uh, personally, you know the. Uh, let me. Let me start over real quick. So, you know, over the years, I'm sure you've heard the rumblings. I sure have, have uh, where they say, well, in all this time, you know, at least uh, some teams, they, they make it into the playoffs. And after, you know, 10 or 15 years, you know, you can just kind of fall into a playoff win. The Lions have 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 yet to win a playoff game, you know, since the early 90s when, you know, Charlie won. Since Charlie Bat, yeah, Scott Mitchell. I think it was against the the Washington Redskins at the time. No, now it was Eric Kramer. Team. Eric Kramer when oh. they won. Eric Kramer is the last time they won, 1991. Yeah. Even better. So uh with this, and I say that because the coaching staff that the, or excuse me, the coaching staffs that they brought in are all, you know, aside from Jim Caldwell, which was unfortunate what happened there, but all these other coaches kind of pounding their chest and you know, I'm the man, I'm going to turn it around, and you can trust me. And they just got tossed around they got their asses beat they got spanked it was awful and when you when I look at this coaching staff you know the old saying like you don't know what you don't know so you get a collection of guys who you know are, have been around football since they were little children they played 
you know, in every facet of the game, you know, in the professionals, Pro Bowls, who knows what was going on. But so you don't know what you don't know. So maybe, you know, getting this collection of guys, individuals together, they don't know what they don't know. So they're just going to, you know, trust their gut and, and play from their heart or, or kind of coach from their heart, which I know you don't want to hear. You, we want solid coaches with techniques and everything along those lines. But we've tried that before. We've tried that for the last 25 or 30 years and it hasn't panned out. And I, I have to be honest with you here. I am more optimistic. But again, if you look back the last 20 years in terms of the Lions, every fan, it's the same thing. It's the same cycle. You know, like there's a cycle for, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts. They go through the same thing. Depression. People go through the same waves, exhaustion. Whatever. They go through the same waves. And as a Lions fan, that's uh, it's the same waves. Every time around this year, you know, the draft is upon us and the optimism is at an all time high. We're going to kill the draft. We're going to get the players we want and we need. And then we go into OTAs and, and spring, you know, games and everything. And uh, up, yeah, every year Stafford is as healthy as he's ever been. Calvin is back. He looks so good. And then preseason comes, we tear up the preseason, we go undefeated in the preseason, or, you know, we win three games and, and lose a game in the preseason. And then we completely take a dump in, in the regular season. And that's when you get the, you know, if they do this again to me, I'm never following them again. I'll give them the first half of the season or the first four games, the first quarter of the season, and then I'm out and I will never be a Lions fan again. And then the circle starts over at the end of the season. Well, you know, if they get a new head coach, maybe I'll come back and we'll see what's going on. So it's the same vicious cycle for Lions fans over the years. But in terms of what's going on now, uh, I found myself last Monday morning, I was, I woke up early, had nowhere. I didn't have to be to work till about nine o'clock. So I was having a cup of coffee in peace. And I saw, I got the alert that Dan Campbell uh, was giving a live press conference on zoom. You know, people were talking and I, I can't remember the last time I listened to every second of a press conference, you know, this early on in the season. And I really did like what I heard. And again, that could be, that's whatever, you know, you like what you heard, but you know, you, know, you every, you could be, you could be picked apart for anything you say, but Dan Campbell, you know, he, he didn't strike me as the guy who was like, you know what, I'm the man. I'm the right hire. This is what I yeah. should have done. He gave, uh, you know, some solid, not arguments, but he said, I don't know everything. I, it's not yeah. just about me. I'm not the end all be all of this organizations. Matt Patricia thought he was the gift, uh, the gift of the football gods in the city of Detroit. Dan Campbell, if you took anything from that press conference Monday, he said, well, we, Anthony Lynn, Deuce, Deuce McAllister is here. I'm and they, the guy said, "Well, what, what what's Deuce's role? He, I'm going to bring him in on all my meetings, you know, to see how it works, and maybe he can turn his uh, this experience and get a head coaching job in the future." Other coaches don't talk like that. If, if if he's on your staff, you don't talk about future endeavors. He Dan Campbell just looks like he wants to get in here and help and take everything in. And he said again, "This is everybody talks like this. It's co coach speak, as they call it." But he goes. I want to hear everybody's thoughts, everybody's advice, and then we're going to make decisions together. It's not all on me. And I like that. He said, he said as a true alpha, he doesn't have to have the final decision on roster, on, on roster moves. Exceeding exactly. that he can concede the decision to roster moves. You have kind of, that's a good transition. You've mentioned, you said the name. Let's just talk about Matt Patricia. And I want to start our conversation with Matt Patricia with a story, I think I man, I can't. I think I read it in the Athletic. 
I can't remember exactly where. Maybe it was on MLive. Maybe it was Kyle Mikey on MLive. Matt Patricia's first tr- training camp, um, they are doing joint practices with either the Giants or the Browns. I can't remember. Odell Beckham was on the team, so I can't remember if it was New York or Cleveland. Darius Slay, uh, after one of the practices, takes a picture with Odell, puts it on the screen, walks into the locker room, goes to the meeting afterwards. By the time he gets to the team meeting after the practice, Matt Patricia has the picture of him and Odell on the Instagram on the in front of everybody and yells at him, stop sucking his you-know-what, and yells at Darius Slay, one of the best players on the team. Oh, boy. Just yeah. embarrasses him. That's who Matt Patricia was. Man, um, told Ashawn Robinson, our second-round draft pick out of Alabama, starter at the time that he doesn't have a career he doesn't have a uh the ability to to play in the nfl when he when he was fired and it was reported on twitter i've never seen so many former players comment on a post like yeah eyeballs or would you look at that i mean they they disliked him they very much disliked him and go ahead no i was just gonna say he he, I never wanted him here. I never wanted him here. I remember, um, I want to say his first, like I, they st- when he started as head coach, I think their first game was on Monday Night Football, and it was against the Sam Darnold rookie-led Jets. And they got blown out, and he's supposed to be this defensive guru. I was just like, mm. actually, even before that, when he first got to Detroit, he went to some Lego city, in in somewhere in downtown Detroit, and he was smiling and pointing to like they had a welcome Matt Patricia. And I text my friend Jason McNally. I said, This dude is a tourist here. He's a tourist. He won't be here that long. I had hope for Jim Schwartz. I love Jim Schwartz. I had hope for Jim Caldwell. I had hope for Steve Mariucci. I don't know that I had hope for Rod Marinelli. Um, but Matt Patricia, I just never, I never wanted him here. He, like you said, he thought he was God's gift to football. And I'll tell you case in point why. They kept drafting these tweeners in the front seven. Defensive ends who were like 270 pounds and they were too slow to get around the edge. Defensive tackles who were tweeners. He brought brought Danny Shelton and Trey Flowers and all these other New England Patriots who are allegedly going to help us. No, 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 you know. They they got linebackers who couldn't cover and couldn't pass the couldn't rush the passer. You know, he, he ostracized Darius Slay. Uh, this, who's our safety who went to uh, the the who got traded to the um, to the Seahawks? Quandre Quandre Diggs. Diggs. Quandre Diggs, sixth round draft pick out of Texas, who it's made fun. a name for himself. Fantastic, fantastic player, especially given where he was drafted. Ostracized him. You know. I think that that guy was so full of himself, just so full of himself. He thought that he was it. That's why they didn't have to. That's why they could take. Um, uh, is it Jelani Tavai? Jelani Tavai, who nobody round. had, oh, nobody had to him being taken taken in the second round. You look at my man Math Bomb on Twitter, who's a Lions fan, also putting out the uh, the relative athletic scores. Jelani Tavai, and that's a score out of one or zero to ten. Jelani Tavai, like you know, of two who, who's the dude, the cornerback out of, uh, 
out of Florida. Tabor, Tease um, Tabor. I, I, I knew what you were going to say. I had it in my four, mind. I knew what you were going to say. Four seven forty or something like that. We had him. We had him playing middle linebacker and dime because he couldn't play corner. <laughs> I mean, the arrogance of this organization was just outstanding in the fact that they thought that they could one not treat their players like human beings, and then two treat the players that they had like garbage and build a winning football team. And he was wrong. That's why he's back in New England as a consultant or whatever it is. Yeah, he ran back to New England with his tail tucked between his legs here. So I, I don't know. Uh, I hate to reference, you know, another platform, but a few days ago on this this new amazing clubhouse, I was in, you know, a room, and I, I you might have been there briefly, but Darius Butler hopped in. You know, the uh, he played mm-hmm. professional football Col- for several years. Yeah, Colts, mm-hmm. Carolina, and but New England drafted him. So I had a moment. I had a window, and I just I. Asked, I asked him straight up. He played under Matt Patricia. I go, what's Matt Patricia's deal? Why is he such a jerk? Why do, why do the players hate him so much? And Darius Butler said, well, to be honest with you, Chris, uh, Matt Patricia is one of the, the better X's and O's guys I've ever seen, but he's, he's, he's awful to people. He treats the, the equipment people, the, the, you know, the, 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 staff that does the laundry, the staff that clean, he treats everybody like crap and players and see that. Right. So it's kind of like a, uh, you know, like they say, marijuana is a gate drug, gateway drug. So you smoke weed and then bam, you're doing some hard drugs here. Matt Patricia was the same way, but being an asshole in coaching, he was a jerk to the, the people that were less lesser than than him, but he wouldn't treat Belichick that way. He wouldn't treat Josh McDaniels that way because he was just a d- defensive coordinator. So the Lions hand him the key to the castle and he's he's the head honcho here in Detroit. So he feels he can treat everybody like jerks. He can put everybody down and it, he was completely ran out of town here. He thought he knew everything. He always thought he was the smartest man in the room. Now, over the last year and a half, maybe two years since I, you know, been on Twitter writing and broadcasting here, most people will know uh, I'm a high character guy. You know, uh, I, I don't want to say me personally because that, you know, I, I paint a, a wild <laughs> picture, but every, I, what I expect of other people and what I expect from players, because that's what we're doing here. We're, we're writing articles, we're judging players, we're judging coaching staffs. I'm not a fan of, of when a young kid dances on the on the middle of the field and records it on TikTok. That's no surprise. In terms of Matt Patricia, he's he sounds like he's awful to everybody, and he's not a high character guy. It's his way or the highway, and it just it throws locker rooms and it throws organizations into turmoil where you completely uh, disbanded what what little you had here in Detroit, and now look at you. You'll not. You, more than likely he'll never see a head coaching gig ever again. There's just absolutely no way because that that's what they do here. It's networking. It's yeah. You want to take a look at this guy or this girl nowadays, and they're very good. They're very kind. They get the the most out of their players. Matt Patricia is the opposite. He, he will grab somebody and shake them upside down and like a bully and the change will fall out of their pockets. Matt Patricia is a guy I I don't want around anything that I'm ever doing. Even if I were to, let's say, host a celebrity softball game in, in, mm-hmm. in Detroit or host a, a celebrity poker game in the New England Patriots locker room, I would not want him there. He's that miserable to me, and he treats people so lowly where there is absolutely no way you can respect him or respect that kind of behavior. 
I want to lighten the mood a little bit here, at least for a second. Thank you. I I'm going to blow my top here. <laughs> I want to give you some names and you just you just go. OK, you just go. Let's start with Indomitian Sue. Indomitian Sue, man, just talk to me about when we had Corey Williams and Cliff Averill and Indomitian Sue and Kyle Vandenbosch. That was a good time. That was a good time in Detroit has been a team that has built its success around a high-flying offense and a uh, a front four that can press, that can rush the passer. All the, Go back to Luther Ellis and Robert Porsche. That's what, in Scott, as bad as Scott Mitchell was, Lomas that Brown. offense put up, they put up, Lomas Brown, they put up points with Herman Moore and Johnny Mitchell and, and, uh, you know, and Barry Corey Sanders. Corey Schlesinger. Cor- Corey Schlesinger, fate, Mr. Broken Face Mask. Talk to me about Indomitian Sue, though. though. That was that was such a good time. So here, I'm trying to formulate what how I, I got some good stuff. I'm trying to you know put it in you know chronological order here. So the, the day they drafted him, I loved it. He's a mean sucker. He's in your face. He'll body slam you. And that's I've always looked at if I, let's say I was a GM building an offense kind of like what Washington is doing, just. Uh, nothing but first and second round defensive studs. They're mean, yeah. they're nasty. Yeah. People yeah. get probably, you know, they're grown men, and but they don't, you know, we don't, really don't want to go to Washington and, and play th- that, team, that team, that front, that pass rush here. And Dominican Sue playing next to, if you remember, Nick Farrelly as well was another uh, nice yes. draft pick. Same draft, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And he was just, you know, he was such a jerk and people hated him, but he was our jerk. So why would we hate him? That that son, or excuse me, I believe it was Sunday night or Thanksgiving when he just stepped on Aaron Rodgers' leg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, that's you don't preach that or you don't say, "Hey, this is fantastic." But in the back of my mind, I'm saying, "Yeah, the Lions need an identity. They've been awful for so long. Let's create some kind of mystique where you know well, we're going to beat the shit." crap out of you excuse me and we're mean and we're nasty and that's Indomitian Sue and I loved his time while he was here and I I can honestly say I'm very uh, happy and excited that he was able to win a Super Bowl a couple months ago with the with the Buccaneers with with the Buccaneers that was 2011 ish and the thing about that time is the Lions as a franchise and as an organization were still coming off of that 2008 0-16 team so they had Rod Marinelli and they brought in Jim Schwartz and Jim Schwartz was um, he was what the team needed to turn that like his attitude, his swagger, his belief in himself. Those teams were undisciplined, but they weren't scared of nobody. And Dominican Sue, Corey Williams, Nick Fairley, DeAndre Levy. Remember DeAndre Levy running around? Yeah, poor Those guy couldn't stay not, healthy to stay safe. He couldn't stay healthy, but he was a beast. Those teams were not afraid of anybody. And Indomitian Sue was at the center of that. His rookie year, he had 10 sacks. He had 10 sacks as a defensive tackle as a rookie. He scored a touchdown versus the Redskins on an interception. He could have been the defensive MVP that year, but the team wasn't very good. I don't know that there has been a better tackle excuse me a better first year season by a defensive tackle obviously coming out of nebraska and that big 12 championship game that he had with like four i mean just harassing colt mccoy absolutely and i I, just harassing colt mccoy and i remember thinking oh snap the uh 
the Rams are going to take a quarterback. They're going to take some. We're going we're going to get Indomitian Sue. We're going to get Indomitian Sue. Game and changer. It was, it was a game changer. He was a he was a defensive tackle that you could build the entire defensive round. You could build you. He could be the fa- the foundation, and you could build. And as a matter of fact, we did. The Lions did build with Justin Durant and Stephen Tulloch uh, playing in the secondary, uh, playing in the in the, at linebacker. I can't even remember who our secondary was. I don't know if it was Chris Houston, Louis Delmas out of Western Michigan was on some of those teams. One of my favorite players. Fantastic, um, yes. One of the one of the second round draft picks that they actually got have gotten right in the last twenty years, and down, and when he left to go to Miami in whatever year that was, I was just like, man, I wish that he would have retired in Detroit because, like you said, yeah, he was a jerk and he had these suspensions and stuff. He was our he jerk. was our jerk. He was our jerk. He was our jerk. I I think it was Thanksgiving versus the Bears. Remember that they called it a forearm shiver when he just pushed Jay Cutler. He just pushed Jay Cutler, but because yeah. he's so damn strong, Jay Cutler had whiplash and his neck goes all back and everything, and they called him a flag. He's really um, – I don't know that he's been as explosive a player as he was when he was here in Detroit, but um, he's – man, he's still been a damn good player, and I wish he was still here. I wish he was still here. All right. I agree. Let, let me throw another player out there who's no longer here. More recently, Matthew Stafford. Um, I was actually happy for him because I could see like we weren't going to put him through another coaching regime, coaching regime change. There was was no way that that was going to happen. And so when he was traded, I was actually happy for him. Um, We had so many good memories with Matthew Stafford, especially after his first two years him getting injured by Julius Pepper. I mean, Julius Peppers, I hated Julius Peppers because he kept injuring my quarterback. And he was an Iron Man for the team. He never had the success that you would want. But I thought that he, I don't know if, I mean, I have my own echo chamber. I don't know if, if Matthew Stafford was polarizing to you, but he wasn't for me. He was, he was never polarizing for me. I always wanted him to be the quarterback. I never thought that quarterback was an issue for them. They needed to build the team around him. And obviously all the fourth quarter comebacks that he had and his, you know, his as public as his wife was and he was for the city. I thought that he was a he was great for the franchise and great for the state, great for the city. I'm sad to see him go, but he's 32 years old. He's got back issues, the same back issues, I believe, that caused Tony Romo to retire. So now he goes to L.A. Rams team with offensive genius Sean McVay. I'm happy for them. I think that we could have gotten a better deal. I would have wanted a couple of higher draft picks because we got first round picks in 2022 and 2023. If Matthew Stafford stays healthy, those might be the 32nd picks and 32nd picks for the LA Rams. You got Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and, you know, they needed a quarterback and they got one in Matthew Stafford. He's going to raise the all, all the ships there for that offense. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about Talk to me. Just talk to me a little bit about Matthew Stafford and what you thought about his career in Detroit and what he what he meant to you. So I want to preface this by saying uh, I agree with everything you said. You you left little to no meat on the bone here in terms of Stafford, but uh, I I do have a couple things you know and just speak right from here, right from the heart, right from the soul. Matthew Stafford is a good man. 
Uh, him and his wife, Kelly, they, they did a lot of good things for the city and they still continue to do good things in the city. He's in LA, but I believe it was last week. They, they already, they gave a million dollars of their own money to keep or, or to create like a, a boys and girls club where kids can go and everything it's, it's going to be a brand new facility, brand new ball diamonds, football fields, weights, a gym, you know, and, and these kids can just go and be safe there in the city of Detroit. That's what kind of man he is. He doesn't have to do that. He's got a, a he's got more money uh, than God in a way. You know, a couple hundred million dollars is a lot personally, but he's a good man. He never uh, caused troubles. How many times could he have just been a jerk and said, "I want out of here. This franchise yeah. is is lowly. There, I don't belong. I don't deserve to be here." And he could have got away with it. You know, quite frankly, he could have got a, gotten away with it. But that's not the kind of man Matthew Stafford is. Uh, the Detroit Lions organ organization failed him. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. They had so many years and so much time to, you know, kind of put, put just a little something together for him. He, he started in what three playoff games for the lions. I believe that was in, Mm -hmm. that was it, you know, uh, both first round exits against, uh, Dallas, Seattle, and the saints, if I'm not mistaken. There you go. In the saints, we were up in the second half. We were up in the third quarter of that game. We were up, we were up 17, nothing against the Cowboys. And whatever year, whatever year that was, you know, um, so no, I'm, I'm right there with you on Matthew Stafford. I just want to, I want to give you two more names because they were big in my, we're getting nostalgic again here. I want to, you know, this is why I wanted to do this. Uh, we'll, we'll handle these at the same time. Tom Kowalski. I see, I see Tom Kowalski, Tom killer Kowalski and Jim Branstadter. Jim Branstadter is currently the voice of the Michigan Wolverines, but he was the longtime voice of the Detroit Lions all throughout my childhood. And I think because of a contract dispute, you know, what, two, three years ago, he lost that. And you never like really appreciate something until you don't have it anymore. But I used to, I would turn down the television on the Lions games when I was watching on TV and I would listen to Dan and, and, and Jim Branstadter. I mean, that's, I wanted to hear Jim talk. I losing him. Um, I, I, I can't take it. I can't take it. Like I, I, Lomas Brown is Lomas Brown is fine. Lomas Brown is fine. But, uh, but I want Jim Brandstatter back. And then the other one is Tom Kowalski. Tom Kowalski was a longtime writer for a lot of Detroit newspapers. I can't remember exactly which ones that he wrote for, but he wrote for, uh, M live, which is the now free press for he, sure. Oh, well the free press. Okay. I think when, at the time he died, he wrote for M Live, and uh, he had a, a a radio show with Sean Belegian uh, there in Detroit, and that was part of my routine: listening to Tom Kowalski and Sean Belegian, and then reading him um, uh, uh, on M Live. And the thing about Tom Kowalski: Tom Kowalski was built like a football player. He was one of these huge people and huge personalities and I used to love reading him and he would also go toe-to-toe with the people that called his radio show you know he was always pouring cold water uh uh on us Lions fans drinking the Kool-Aid and he died I I mean I it had to be between 2010 and 2013 somewhere around there uh, were you a fan of uh, talk well talk to me a little I know talk to me a little bit about Tom Kowalski who the media room at the Lions uh, facility is now named after and Jim Brandstatter. Talk to me a little bit about those. Two. Well, let me, I'll get to Co- uh, killer Kowalski second here. When it comes to Jim Brandstatter, there's just, uh, it, 
you know, I don't know. I'm sure you can relate, but anybody that's watching this now or will watch this when you're, you know, so ingrained in, in the city, the city in which you live or the city you support, when you're so ingrained in that sports environment, there's nothing like, you know, going into the garage or sitting on the deck and putting the radio on and, and doing it that way. That's, that's the mark of a good broadcaster, a good play-by-play guy uh, mixed with a good color guy on the radio here, uh, because they, you can close your eyes and it, it, they paint such a good picture and their voices are obviously unique. Their voice Voices are distinct, but Jim Branstadter just he does something to me, and and I'll paint the picture that that Branstadter paints for me when I listen to them. As it stands now, as you said, he's the the Michigan guy, uh, but as the Lions uh, broadcaster, you there was just an excitement there. There was like a comforting, you know, warm feeling when he called the game because you knew that, that he loved this. This is what he does. He's not just a paycheck guy. I'm here. I want to get in and get out. He lives and breathes this stuff. And again, much like anything or anywhere we go in life, people can point out and spot out the fakes in two seconds. You know, they know oh, that 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 guy's article is, is trash. He's just kind of walking through it. Right. He's just sleepwalking through it. Jim Brandstander is a Brandstatter, excuse me, <clears throat> is a high energy guy. And his, his voice, the way he, you know, everything is exciting. Every time a player were, was to uh, receive the football, like a a. a, 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 a a pass or a, a rushing attempt, you thought the guy was going to take it to the house every time. <laughs> Stumbling my words because I'm having a you know a, a little disconnect trying to tell you what Brandstatter means to me because that's all really I've ever known on Detroit radio aside from like Ernie Harwell or uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and Jim Brandstatter, he's just so comforting to me. And you know that no matter what's going on, you you know you you can get away for three or four hours. You can go in the basement. You can go in the garage. Leave the wife and kids if you live alone. You can go there and just be free. You can. He transports me from wherever I am. If, if it's a crappy situation I'm going through, or if everything is just coming up roses, I can disconnect from everything around me for a few hours. And Jim Brandstatter is going to take me there whether I like it or not. And when it comes to Keller Kowalski, you know, there's certain guys in, in across the, uh, you know, United States that write and that broadcast that, you know, they're, they're larger than life too. Like Skip and Stephen A, they're, mm -hmm. they might, they're celebrities now from, from talking on the radio, fighting with each other, writing articles, trolling, whatever they do, they've turned themselves into celebrity just as much as the professional athlete superstars are. And Killer Kowalski, if you asked anybody, you know, not within, you know, the, 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 you know, Michigan, Ohio, anywhere where you can pick up a, uh, you know, a Lions gamer or a Lions paper or a Detroit local radio, you wouldn't know. If you went to California, nobody knows who Killer Kowalski is, but that's fine. He created his own uh, niche here, his own atmosphere here, and he yeah. did it very well, and he did it the right way. When he passed away uh, suddenly, unfortunately, you know, people were, I don't want to say coming out of the woodwork, but there's people, you know, the, the Channel 4, WDIV mm -hmm. news anchors mentioned him. Channel 7, mm -hmm. WXYZ, local Fox 2. Everybody had a story about, you know, oh, I ran into Killer Kowalski at the bar downtown or at the, the auto show. He took time out to take a picture with my grandson. You know, it's so he did it the right way through, uh, I don't want to say net networking seems too impersonal. Like, you know, you can network yeah. and, you know, it's just like, hey, this is what I want to do. Can you help me? So I don't want to say networking. I want to say, 
building, you know, close relation, emotional relationships with people, no matter where you're from or who you are. And it, 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 it all was predicated on one thing, the Detroit Lions, Detroit local sports and how deep that runs here in the city and in the state of Michigan. So Killer Kowalski is sadly missed. They do a, uh, you know, a fundraising event every year, which I try and get to, uh, if it's not too expensive to get in, but Hey, that's the point. The more expensive it is, it's all, it's all for charity and, and coats and, and needy kids here. So sorely missed, but fantastic. Someone that I would, you know, implore people to just Google when you get in bed tonight, just Wikipedia him. And that's it. I'm not asking you to write a book report on him, but just read what he did and what he was about and what a good man he was. And that's, he did things the right way. I just want to tie, to tie a bow on Tom Kowalski. Had the Lions been a team that was prominent for the duration of his career, well, Tom Kowalski would have been on ESPN or whatever national you know television show. He, he would have been that um, because that's how good he was. All right. I don't want to keep you out here forever, so let's do just two more things. Um, well, a couple of things. All right. I got I all night, Felix. Me, I got all night. I want you to I want you to give me your best. Let's start. I want to give you give me your best and worst Lions moments. And if you like, I can start or you can go. And then after that, we'll do our top, let's say our, our top 10, top 10 lines really quick, and then we'll close it out. All right. So I would say the best one, I have two, I actually, I have like 15, but you know, if I had to whittle yeah. it down off the top of my head here. So uh, I was at the, the lions uh, Denver Broncos game a few seasons ago when they blew them out. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Sean Rogers picked up a fumble and he ran like 70 or 80 yes. yards and that place yes. from, from the snap. That place was insane. So you can imagine how wild it went when Fatso Sean Rogers got into the end zone, scampered down the sideline there. And again, the reason why it, it was so, you know, it sticks out to me is because I say this all the time throughout the season. When's the last time a Lions game was, you know, by halftime, it was already it was already decided in the Lions' favor? Or when's the last time a fourth quarter of the Lions game started and we're like, this is good. We got it. I can mm -hmm. I can go I can go outside and cut the grass. Everything is good to go. They they they're always in, you know, they always find a stupid way to lose or a stupid way to, so it's nuts. So to be uh that comfortable, it's rare. It's rare for Lions fans to be like, we can celebrate. They're going to win. It, that's it. They're done. Uh the second one I will say was I believe it was Christmas Eve uh 2006-2007. Uh, they're playing the Chargers, and if the if they win, they're in. That was the game. If they win, they're in. I was, it was uh, eleven. It was two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. Yeah. If they win, they're in. Right. So I was uh, uh dating a, a girl at the time, long term relationship. We're at her her side of the family in uh, Westland or Wyandotte, right? And I go, we got to keep, and they were at home. I go, we got to keep, we had the tickets, but got to go to family. It's Christmas Eve, which was the worst mistake I've ever made. But so I go, we got to keep an eye on this thing because to get home, we, we drive right by Ford Field. So if, if it's halftime and it's kind of like the early on in the third quarter, if it's close or they're up, we, we got to split. We got to get out of here and we got to find a way to get to the game. And in the third quarter, she, 
she granted my Christmas wish and we left and we couldn't get in, but we went to Greek town and we were able to watch. I mean, I've never seen so many people. I've seen a ton of people in Greek town, but huddled around the bars, right? Watching it on TV. And, you know, that I believe they recovered a fumble to seal the deal with like three or four minutes left. And it was Christmas Eve. Uh, my father, my late father at the time was, was pretty sick with, with cancer, which, which took him. So all the emotions were going, it's Christmas Eve. I know my dad is at home watching. I'm with the, the love of my life at the time. And it was special. And they get the fumble and I, I, I cried a little bit. I have no problem saying, you know, as a man that I cried a little bit because the playoffs are, that's, they, they don't do that. And to given the, the time of the year in the situation, mm-hmm. it was just, it did something to me. So I already know uh, when they win a playoff game or that, you know, they make it to the NFC championship, uh, you know, please, God willing, I should say, it's going to be, you know, waterworks here. So those are like two of my, my most favorite memories. And uh, let me jump in here. Let me jump in here on your favorite memory. So that was to the 2011 game. I want to say that they secured the playoffs, the game before I'm pretty sure they, they secured the the playoffs uh, week 16 against the chargers at home. And I talked earlier about how the Jim Schwartz teams were not scared. They weren't. They weren't. I want to say that the first play of that game was a deep shot to Calvin that they actually took, and they didn't care. I remember uh, uh, earlier in Matthew Stafford's career, they were playing the Jets at the height of Daryl Revis's powers and Darrell Re- D- Revis shutting everybody down. What was the first play when the Lions got the ball? Deep shot to deep shot to Calvin. Now. Darrell Revis actually shut Calvin down in that game, but the point remains that they just weren't scared. And, and if I watch the I, – I swear, if you watch the highlights of that Chargers game, the early on they had a um, they had a a, a, uh, a, t- a touchdown from Calvin deep shot. I also remember Cliff Averill coming around the edge and getting a, a sack fumble, uh, 2011. And the next game I'm, – I'm positive that that was week 16 because the next game they played Green Bay – at Green Bay, uh, Matt Flynn for the division. went off in that game. Yes, that was Matt another Flynn, one. Matt Flynn went off in that game, and that's the contract that got Matt Flynn. His, that's the game that got Matt Flynn his contract for Seattle, where he signed the big contract for Seattle. He never started for Seattle because Russell Wilson took. So that was 2011, uh, right there. All right, give me. Go ahead, give me your your worst or wherever you were going next. Yeah. Well, the the one that sticks out that weighs heavy on my mind is uh, not necessarily a game because it's the Lions; they lose all the time. So at, at this point, it's like they're you know why would it be you know why would one stick out more than the other? You know, if you're the, a Patriots fan and they lose in the Super Bowl, then yeah, that that's something to get bummed out about. But it's it's the situation where when Kelvin Johnson uh, you know decided to to walk away and he was kind of walking through the last few games that he played here uh he was hurt he was banged up and he it, it just wasn't going his way and more so again not one game per se but the way that the lions have handled you know kelvin johnson he an, another a very humble hardworking guy uh the football it was everything to him and this is the only organization that he's known and they've completely you know 
just been mm. mean and, and rude to him. I it weighs heavy on my mind, as I say, because I want them to make it right with him so bad. He had he would have a, a spot in the front office whenever he wanted to, if they could make it right over a couple million bucks, something like that, which to a professional sports team it is nothing. That's like five, ten bucks to, to guys like us, but they need to make it right. He could come in now and work with Barry, work with Chris Spielman as kind of a player uh representative or like a player. Uh, you know, in a, in a role, like in a capacity role where you you're helping people out and you can work with, with these young kids one-on-one and it would pay dividends. There's nothing like that in the NFL, but you know, a head coach can only do so much, you know, I, we know Dan Campbell played, but to be a newly minted hall of fame, excuse me, football player, and to come in and work with, let's say they draft Jamar Chase number seven or Devonta Smith number seven, the dividends that he would be able to pay with the organization would be huge. So again, uh, not to buck your comment or, or question or say, you know, screw you, I'm going to answer my own way. It's the whole situation with, with Kelvin Johnson that really bums me out. And real quick, if it was one game, I was at the Atlanta Falcons game a few seasons ago, uh, he didn't cross the plane. The Lions won that game and it just, it, it through early on in the season, it completely threw the entire season out of whack, which was supposed to be, uh, you know, one of the better uh, Lions seasons, and they just uh, it was awful. So the situation with Calvin is so similar to how Barry Sanders left the team and he didn't have a good relationship with the organization for several years. And it kind of took a while for them to warm up to each other again. And it's really sad because Calvin Johnson didn't go back to Georgia. He still lives in Michigan. He still lives in, in the Detroit area and uh, and doesn't, but, but I should provide this, you know, the audience to know this. Um, When Calvin decided he was going to retire, uh, Rod Wood, one of the first things he said to him was like, I hoped you saved that bonus or something like that. Like he got a $1 million bonus earlier in the season. And because he retired, technically the lines would be owed it back. Now, I think for a lot of organizations, they would just said, you know, this is one of our all time players. We'll just let him go. The Lions didn't. They went and collected the money from him. And so that's the that's the source of the rift between Calvin and the Detroit Lions. And damn it, Sheila Ford Hamp, please give him his money with interest. Please give him his money with with interest. She's been fantastic. I have no I have no issue that if she can anything in her power to make it right, she will do. Yeah. So it's funny that um, your best moment came from 2011 because my best moment also comes from 2011, but it's earlier in the season. So that 2011 season, it felt like something was going to happen because they had a lot of good pieces. Um, They were building something. Jim Swart, you know, that defensive line was good. You had Matthew Stafford. You had Calvin. I think Nate Burleson was your number two wide receiver at that time. And so they had built in Brandon Predigrew was there. You had Tony Scheffler. So you had good offensive pieces and you had some you had some things uh, around around the, uh, the franchise as far as pieces go. 2011, um, the Tigers. The Tigers are in the playoff chase. They're in the ALCS. They play the Rangers earlier in that afternoon. They lose. They lose like 7-3 or something like that. But the Lions were either 4-0 or 5-0 at the time. They were playing on Monday night football. So after the Tigers game, I had people over my house. There was... I had a a little two-bedroom apartment, and I probably had 50 people in my house to watch these two games. And um, 
there was a play in that Monday night football game where a jabbed best, you know, breaks off a long touchdown. And you could see the camera shaking on the Monday night football telecast because that was the place nuts. was just going the place was just going crazy. And it's probably never been louder because the line, you know, they went, I think they went six and oh, and six and oh, that means essentially you're going to get to you're gonna get to the playoffs. So yeah, the percentage is increased. Yeah, yeah. And even at six and oh, Lions fans are like, we're not, we're still not gonna make it. So that was kind of like the confirmation that we're we are contenders. Now that's also the season that they went to the Saints. They lost to the Saints uh in the in the playoffs in the first round there. But damn it, the Lions scored first in that game. They were up in the third quarter, but that secondary kind of melted to uh, against Drew Brees in the in the second half there. Um my worst lines, there are lots of worst lines moments. Uh, I'm trying to think of where to start. How about when I when I broke my phone? It was 2013, the Lions coming off that, you know, they were they had made the playoffs in 2011. Uh, 2013 is when they added Reggie Bush, so that's that team. They were playing the uh, the Baltimore Ravens, who were contenders themselves, on on a, it was a primetime game either Thursday night or Monday night and um tight game all the way through tight game all the way through oh the other context is necessary for that one that's a year that Aaron Rodgers and Jay Cutler were injured so it was like okay we're the only ones with a healthy quarterback so we need to be able to make the playoffs here so we got to play the Ravens we got to win this game and we're going to kind of establish that we are the NFC North we're going to be the NFC North champions. Tight game all the way through with less than two minutes left. Justin Tucker kicks a 61-yard field goal. So a 61-yard field goal, ladies and gentlemen, means that he he kicked it from the other side of the 50, like going the opposite way. All right. I'm like, all right, it's Matthew Stafford. We have uh we've got like, I think we had like, I don't know, like a minute and 30 something left. They kicked the ball off. First play, Stafford throws an interception to James Zahedabo, who ends up coming to the Detroit Lions the season after. I I held my hand like this. I held my hand, and I, I had my cell phone in my hand. I had my cell phone in my hand, and I couldn't hold it. And I spiked my phone, and I went to the back, and to the shower. I turned on the shower, and I cried. And I was like, how can we How can we not? That was a big game late in the season. We needed that game to be, to, to, to compete, to be in the playoff contention, and we lost. And after winning the entire game, after winning the entire game, Stafford throws that interception. I could not keep, I couldn't hold my hand. I couldn't hold my hand. So that's one of my, my worst. Um, the other one, I had to look this up. Herman Moore in 2000, I'm going back here. So uh, Herman Moore, one of my favorite all-time lines. I used to go to Herman Moore, catch 84 football camp. I've got two shirts from back in the day, from back in the 90s, going to Herman Moore, catch 84 football camps, and Reggie McKenzie camp, by the way. Um, 2000, Herman Moore was an all-time Lions wide receiver. He had been injured in 2000. He came back towards the end of the season. It's late in the game. He gets open on a long, for a long touchdown and just drops the ball. Drops the ball. Can you imagine that? Like your hero like going to lift the whole city into the playoffs and he drops the ball. It was like one of the last games that he played for the, I think he played for the lions the second season, but was injured the entire season. And, but it was one of the last games that he played for the lions. Had they won that game, they would have been in the playoffs, but they finished eight and eight 
And this happened like three or four times, maybe not three or four, two or three times in the late 90s, early 2000s, where Paul Edinger, kicker for the Bears, kicks the game-winning field goal to just cripple the lines. And Paul Edinger was a former Michigan State kicker and would, I mean, there were so many games where it was like, damn it, this this Edinger dude. So that is, that's my worst. Oh, I got one more because I this is another time when I cried. I was I was a young kid though. Scott Mitchell, uh, we're playing the Bengals. I don't remember what the, I've seen this highlight on YouTube. We're playing the Bengals. I was at the game. The game goes into overtime, and Scott Mitchell throws a pick six to end the game. Like somebody ran like eighty yards for a touchdown on a pick six. I tore his page out of the program and threw it onto the field. I was I was so I was so upset and I was a ki- I was a grown man in that in that uh that uh that that Ravens Lions game but I was a kid you know back when Scott Mitchell threw that pick six and 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 I and I cried on the way home I'm pretty sure that there are other times but I I uh but those are the ones that I could think of right now so all right let's uh let's close out with this I want you to give me your you can give me yours, and, and then I'll give you mine. And I'm not going to say Barry or Calvin. I'm going to give you my top ten lions, not not named Barry or Calvin. But let's start with yours. Sure, uh, Herman Moore uh, would probably. I mean, I, I have him written down in a list. I don't have them <laughs> ranked. I don't have them ranked, but uh, I can do that on the fly. I'll just read them off in the order. No, that you I, don't. No, we, no, you don't have to read. I'm going to do the same thing. I don't have them ranked either. Just give me ten. Okay, so Herman Moore obviously. Uh, Scott Mitchell, he was a quarterback when I was a young boy. I liked him. Corey Schlesinger. I mean, that goes without saying. Chris Spielman. Uh, I'm going to say Wayne Fonts. I mean, you said player, but I have his, I have Wayne Fonts cards hanging up in my office here. They got them all over the place. Uh, So Wayne Fonts would be one. Uh, Mel Gray, the the fantastic, Mm. you know, DB. He returned kicks, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Dre Bly was one of my favorites when he came over. He was fantastic. Lomas Brown, uh, we mentioned him earlier on in the broadcast. Uh, Johnny, uh, no, uh, Johnny Morton, if I'm not mistaken, the wide receiver. Mm -hmm. Yes, him. Uh, Billy Sims, I have his rookie rookie autograph hanging here in my office here. I'll grab it uh, real quick while you're talking. And then Rodney Pete. Rodney Pete was fantastic. Mm. I I always loved uh, Rodney Pete. Okay. All right. I'm going to go Luther Ellis and Robert Porsche. Yeah. I'm going to go Louis Delmas. I'm going to go Dre. You have to have Dre Bly in there. For folks who don't know, Dre Bly was like the only reason to watch the Lions on Thanksgiving Day because he tried to win games by himself and, at cornerback. At and he cornerback, had that. He like had that. That DB swagger that you you know yes. Jamal Adams has. You know, like that yes. was un, unheard of here in Detroit. He's now a great recruiter at the University of North Carolina with Mac Brown. Um, I'm going to go uh, Kevin Jones. I'm going to go Kevin Jones. I'm going to go Herman Moore. I'm going to go DeAndre Levy. I got to go DeAndre Levy. Um, oh, come on. Come on. Oh, Herman. I, did I say Herman Moore yet? I don't know if I said Herman Moore. I'm going to. I have you to say him again. Moore. Yeah, I've got two more. I've got two more. Um. Uh, I can't help you. It's your list. You know what I mean? I can't, I can't name drop for you. Yeah. I'm just, I'll, I'll go, I'll go at the top eight. So I don't now. Now it's going to bother me. Look, I know it was my question, but then I didn't just like, I didn't like 
study beforehand and figure out who was who actually I was going to say. So I'll go. I'll, I'll I'll stick with my top eight and uh, and we'll go with that. Man, this was fun. This was fun. This was, was therapeutic. I appreciate you coming on. We might have to do this again at some point, like maybe in the middle of the season or something like that when we see how the draft shakes out and how Dan Campbell and the team are doing. I'll tell you what, man. What do you want them to do? At let me, I'll get you out of here with this. What do you want them to do with their first-round pick? I think it's number seven overall. Uh, I think they should go like, you know, one of the stud offensive players, not a quarterback. I don't want them to draft a quarterback that can wait. Let Jared Goff uh, bridge the gap for a couple seasons. Uh, I would love them to grab one of the stud wide receivers, not named Devonta Smith. If if Jamar Chase is there at seven, maybe he will be uh, that. That would be my selection would be fantastic. All right. My boy, Jay Mick, I see he, he's uh, there in the comments. Um Chris, this was fun. We're going to have you again. Tell pe- the people where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Detroit Beastie. Uh, I pride myself in getting back to everybody who reaches out, asks me a question, asks me, tags me, texts me. So uh, don't feel weird. You can always send me a message. I will, I'll be there to, to conversate with you. I'm Felix. You can find me at Sharp Review. You can find the Debbie Debate uh, on Wednesdays at 9.30. Go to campus to sign up, sign up for a premium membership. We're going to be out.